0: came out with sets of numbers, and I plotted them on pieces of paper.
1: Radio waves, radio waves. She sees radio waves, radio waves. Astrophys brings the news. Arrays and dishes give different views. Are you confused? Radio waves, radio waves, radio waves,
2: she sees radio waves, she sees radio waves.
0: Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. My name is Brendan O'Brien and today is Friday the 19th of October 2018. Each fortnight we speak with a special guest in the fields of radio astronomy, optical astronomy, space science or particle physics. For the next six episodes of Astrophys we'll be publishing recordings of interviews I did on a two and a half thousand kilometre astro tour of Australia's finest eastern state radio and optical observatories. We started by driving six and a half hours up the Newell Highway through drought-stricken country to arrive at parks in New South Wales at The Dish and spoke again with Dr Jane Kasmerick to follow up on her work as commissioning scientist for the new ultra-wideband UWL receiver system. Then a few hours further up the Newell to Australia's first and only dark sky park in the Warrumbungle Ranges, named by the traditional owners the Gamilaroi people, near Coonabarabran, is sighting spring, where over 50 of our finest optical telescopes sit high on a peak with 360-degree views of the Warren Bungles and the dark, transparent skies above. Here we spoke with Dr. Chris Lidman, the observatory director who shared a Nobel Prize using the telescopes here to demonstrate the accelerating expansion of the universe. We were also treated to a fabulous tour of this huge facility, including SkyMapper, Huntsman, and the Eye Telescope net shed with its roll-off roof, and a huge number of remote telescopes there being used by people from all over the world, including Dr Ian Musgrave. Included in this tour with Amanda Werrett was an in-depth look at the 3.9-metre AAO telescope with its equatorial mount. Thanks, Amanda. Then it's a couple of more hours up almost to the Queensland border to Narrabri to speak with Dr. Jamie Stevens, who's the CSIRO Senior Systems Scientist at the unique ATCA, the Australian Telescope Compact Array, an array of six 22 metre radio dishes mounted on railway tracks doing amazing research. Then, on the return journey, we called in at Parks again and caught up with John Sarkisian, the operations scientist at Parks, who gave us another great interview. Then it's down through Canberra and out to Tidbinbilla to speak with Glenn Nagel at the NASA CSIRO Deep Space Network site with its 70-metre and 43-metre dishes that talk daily to almost every spacecraft in our solar system and beyond. Our tour finished at the Mount Stromlo Observatory, where we were treated to a truly eye-opening tour of the observatory and astrophysics research labs by Dr Brad Tucker from the Australian National University, and we were astonished to be shown the facilities that rigorously test satellites from shoebox-sized CubeSats up to huge 3-metre by 3-metre satellites. After this series, we'll be talking with one of his PhD students who's putting ultraviolet telescopes up above the stratosphere in balloons. Astonishing work. So you're in for an excellent series of episodes. Please stay tuned and tell your friends. And as usual in each episode we cross over to Adelaide in Australia to speak with Dr. Ian Musgrave, who is a university toxicology and pharmacology lecturer, an amateur astronomer and astrophotographer, and he's going to tell us, what's up, Doc? What's up in the night, morning and evening skies for the next two weeks? And he takes us on an astronomical tangent. And we finish up with some Astrophys News highlights featuring the latest discoveries in this golden age of astronomy and space science. So here's our first interview with Dr. Jane Kasmerik at The Dish in Parks. Hello, Jane.
1: Hello, Brendan. Nice to see you. Nice to
0: finally meet you. Finally. Thank you very much. It's great to be here and to look out the window and see that beautiful telescope out there.
1: Yeah, there's nothing quite like it. It is a sight
0: really behold. Yeah, what an office. Now, it's such a pleasure to be here in parks in New South Wales, Australia, at the famous Parks Dish to speak with Dr. Jane Kazmierich. Back in June this year, in Episode 60, you told us about growing up in Wisconsin and how your love of astronomy developed and your passion for asking questions and your serendipitous move out to Australia and how your PhD on immense magnetic fields spanning the Magellanic clouds has led you to work with the CSIRO on the receiver upgrade on this wonderful radio telescope. You explained what receivers are and how the unique UWL ultra Band receiver was installed inside the telescope's focus cabin. Now, Jane, can you tell us how the commissioning process is going? And is your new receiver performing as expected?
1: Yes, the commissioning efforts are going fantastically. We've gotten all of the radio light that we had hoped to get through the UWL, through the processing system, and we've got huge data volumes that we're working through currently. But it is going according to plan. And actually, at present, the UWL, It's actually not installed up in the Focus Cabin because we're doing some final tweaks on it with engineers in Sydney. So it's going to have its final reinstall in about two weeks time, where we will have two solid weeks of 24 hours a day working. So we've got our work cut out for us, but it's all going to plan.
0: Fantastic, so let's find out now about some of those teams. It's very collaborative work that you're doing, Uh, Can you tell us about the scope of the team you're working with? So you've got engineers and technicians in Sydney. Tell us about the teams that are involved in this program.
1: Well, you're absolutely right. This takes an absolute team effort to get something like this off the ground and working. It's been a huge effort from, like you said, engineers in Sydney, the engineers here at Parks. There's actually a number of people around the world, including the UK, Italy, the U.S. and Canada that are helping us actually commission this this instrument, doing some of the night shifts, if you will, so that we don't have to stay up all night. But what I have enjoyed so much about this collaborative effort is that it's allowed me to get a little bit more insight into what engineers think when they see receivers. How are they perceiving this huge instrument? How do they make it work? And it's actually allowed me to understand the technology that we're using a little bit more and be able to appreciate it that much more as well.
0: Okay so there must be an incredible queue of researchers hanging out to get time on this newly refurbished dish. Is new research happening already and being phased in or they all have to wait for the official sign-off of your UWL?
1: Well, we have actually successfully done some new science already, and we're working towards getting that published and actually writing a huge scientific paper about the receiver itself. But you're right, there's a queue. There's a long list of people who actually put forth their science proposals, what they want to use the new receiver for in order to do their new kind of science. And so we actually go through a process of every six months, or what we call a semester, a scientist will submit their proposal and board of astronomers deem that that sounds reasonable and sounds feasible, they'll give you time. So we're just, actually just October 1st, we started our new science semester, and there is a very long line of very interesting science projects that will be using our new receiver. But everyone needs to take their turn and wait their turn as well.
0: Yeah, well, I just saw in your foyer there, there's a list of all the uh, projects and the time allocations and. It sounds like there's no downtime at all. It's working pretty hard all the time.
1: You're absolutely right. There's almost no downtime this, this next semester, which is almost unheard of for a lot of telescopes. So we have our maintenance that we need to do, which is about once a week. We'll take a few hours to make sure the dish is still operating and it's safe. But other than that, it is all science all the time.
0: Fantastic. For those following at Kasmerick on Twitter, We can clearly see you're having far too much fun climbing up the pylons on the dish, up to work in the focus cabin, suspended way above the dish there, and actually driving and parking the dish itself. Can you tell us, look, you're a scientist, you're an astrophysicist, you do a lot of that theoretical work, can you tell us what you're thinking as you're doing such amazing things as part of a normal day?
1: I'll tell you because it's the same thing every time I think how am I this lucky? I never thought that I would be able to experience some of these things, like climbing up to the focus cabin 30 meters above the dish. It is awesome. (laughs) And as we're looking out my window now, we're watching the dish kind of dance around and point right to my office window. (laughs) It doesn't get old, and I hope it never will. It is
0: awesome. Fantastic. Now, you're an accomplished researcher, Jane, and You can commission new instruments and I know you have a passion for outreach and have developed some wonderful programs that you deliver to the public out there at The Dish and you also have some great education programs that you're taking into schools to inspire the next generation of girls and boys. So what's next for you? Can you get a balance of all three of those skill sets and where would you like to go next with your career? (laughs)
1: When you list it off like that, it does sound like a bit a uh, bit much. I do do a lot of outreach, and I think my time here at Parks has actually reignited my passion for it, and I've absolutely loved it. But for what comes next, I hope to really continue in research. It is my true passion. And being in research actually opens a lot of unique doors to continuing outreach, to be able to inspire the next generation to do astrophysics because, you know, seeing is believing. So seeing an astrophysicist in front of a classroom lets the students know that it's something they can pursue. So next, I hope I get to continue in academia or in a research position, much like what I'm in now.
0: Security is not a big thing for scientists. <laughs> no, <it's not. laughs> so, with your outreach, what's the essence of your message you deliver to the general public out here in your visitor centre or when you travel out to schools? What are you telling people?
1: I think there's really two things I try to get across, but I always make sure that whatever message I'm conveying is unique to that group. Because every group kind of is looking for something particular, and once I find it, I really want to focus on that. But I find myself time and time again really just saying the simple thing of astronomy is something you can do. This can be a career option for you. You don't just have to have a Ph.D. There's engineers, there's mechanics, there's a whole team, an army of people that are supporting things like the DISH or like all of the other telescopes that are being built across Australia. And it's something that you can do. If it's your passion, follow it. But I think maybe the most focused for me is I'm trying to take this message to rural Australia. The cities, I mean, they also are very deserving of the same message, but I think it might be a little underrepresented on this side of the mountains, if you will. And so I want to make sure that the students, you know, out here have that understanding that this is something they can do. Because when we talk about how good Australia is at astronomy, who better has that connection or that ability to grasp why we're good than those of us that look up and see a dark sky? It's really already kind of an advantage, if you want to think about it, for, for students that are in rural areas to already understand why we are so good at what we do.
0: Absolutely. So, what a brilliant professional career you have, Jane, and we can be confident that you're inspiring great participation for women in STEM, for example, with your research, your commissioning, and your outreach work. Now, scientists are not all white lab coats, hard hats, and computer nerds. (laughs) (laughs) We all have biases and foibles and strengths and weaknesses. So let's briefly now talk about your avian children. They are not <laughs> just chooks. <laughs> they are incredibly beautiful catwalk models. They are so far removed from your traditional Rhode Island Reds or Australorps that I doubt you could easily pick up from a Parks Agricultural Show. Can you tell us about your allure? these charming animals please jane
1: absolutely so i do have four pet chickens and you're right they aren't just chooks to me they are very much like my children if you will they i have very unique breeds as well so i have a belgian Duclay, i have a polish chicken and i have two silkies and what really attracted me to these breeds is the fact that they're just so weird And they each have a personality that I've been really enjoying to get to know. So they, yeah, it's fun to, you know, do a bit of yard work. Now that I finally have a yard living in parks, I can have something like this. And it's it's fun to have them follow you around as you're just kind of mucking around in the backyard. It's been fun. It's been really fun. But actually, you can get them not that far from parks. Most of my chickens came from Chugong. So you just need to start looking, and it turns out a lot of people like chickens.
0: Something Fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, back to radio astronomy now. Before we go, can you tell us about the next generation of instruments that are coming to the dish, and what sort of research will they support? And an important question, I think, is, is blue sky research an appropriate term for radio astronomy?
1: So we are planning a whole suite of new receivers at Parks. One is it going to kind of be the, the sibling of the ultra wide bandwidth low. So, we're currently designing something called the ultra wide bandwidth high or the UWH. The UWL or the ultra wide bandwidth low even has a little notch in it just for where the UWH will sit perfectly if it's made. So, that actually will be a, as the name suggests, it'll be a high frequency receiver. So, it will see much higher energy radio light, and you'll be able to do. Much of the same kind of pulsar searches, just at higher frequencies, and for spectral line people, people that want to actually see how molecules in space move, will be able to look at a very unique set of molecules at those frequencies. We're also in the design phase of something called a cryogenically cooled phased array feed, or cryopath, we like to shorten things. And the cryopath is going to be kind of the next generation survey instrument for PARKS. So out in Western Australia, we are building the Australia Square Kilometer Array Pathfinder, ASCAP, and they also have phased array feeds on them. So this is the next generation. It's going to be cooler, it's going to be more sensitive, and it's going to increase the survey speeds of something like PARKS, so we can actually see the whole radio sky much faster. And with regards to blue sky astronomy, It's a hard term with that one because, especially at radio wavelengths, we can see through clouds like it's cloudy today here at parks. Not a problem for radio astronomy because we can see right through that. But it is a very exciting time because these advancements in technology, the move to kind of data-heavy science, we're going to see a lot of the universe we haven't been able to see before because of this new technology that we have. So with all the data that we'll be getting from this new technology, it really is going to be a new universe that we're going to be able to see. So blue sky astronomy,
0: sure. And you're in a perfect position to look it straight in the eye.
1: Oh, yeah. (laughs) I hope we get to see some of the great new discoveries coming out of parks.
0: Can you see yourself working at SKA or Meerkat or Astron or as part of this new generation of ultra-powerful instrumentation.
1: I certainly wouldn't say no to those opportunities. I have a number of friends who work at those instruments and that are loving it. It really is a fast-paced world of research now, and now that I have a little bit more skill in commissioning instruments, I hope that I could be of help or any of those telescopes around the world.
0: But time will tell. Fantastic. Well, that is fabulous. Thank you so much, Dr. Jane Kaczmarek. It's been a privilege to come to Parks to speak with you and to share your great adventure in science and radio astronomy with our listeners. Thank you so much. And
1: thank you, Brendan. I think we should put a hard hat on you and take you up in the tower.
0: That would be awesome.
1: Let's go do that.
0: (laughs) So let's cross to Adelaide now to speak with Ian Astroblog Musgrave. Hello,
2: Ian. Hello, Brendan. How's it going?
0: Very good, thanks, Ian. Well, congratulations. I saw the news that you were awarded with a special award at the Australian Skeptics Convention for your Advocacy for Reason. Can you tell us about it?
2: Indeed. I was given the Thornett Award for the promotion of Reason. This was quite stunning to me. I had no idea that I'd been nominated for it, and let alone win it, based around my efforts as a a science communicator, trying to get people to understand more deeply issues around pharmacology, toxicology, herbal medicines, and not panicking about chemophobia. And as well, coffee won't make you live forever. I know this is disappointing to everybody, but it is true. Coffee will not make you live forever. So you were up on stage for Science Babe. I wasn't on stage for the Science Babe, uh, sadly, tragically, but I was on stage very briefly with Pamela Gay, Star Strider, and in fact, I was sitting with Star Strider and Alan Duffy, Uh and that was a fantastic experience speaking to them, uh, amongst other things. Star Strider is uh, a very passionate science advocate, and we talked a lot about what it means to be a science communicator and be inclusive in some of the interesting stories about trying to make people more able to communicate within the medium of science and even teaching science. I've learned an enormous amount and speaking with Alan Duppy was was an incredible experience too. It was a great experience because it fed both of my geek sides, so I was with my astronomy heroes and I was with my uh, medical heroes and also gravitating between the astro geek and the uh, medical geek. I just had this most amazing time and my job was not to really tell people to not worry. My goal is to give the people tools to help them understand what is happening so they can make the decisions themselves.
0: Fantastic, Ian. Well, congratulations. Mm. It's always good to see your friends being acknowledged for all the great work they do. Okay, Ian, well, can you
2: tell us what's up in the sky this week? What's up in the sky this week? This is going to be your last time to see Venus in the evening for this year. Venus has now been rapidly shrinking towards the horizon. At the same time, it's becoming rapidly larger. Venus increasing rapidly in size as its crescent shape gets thinner and thinner. In fact, by now, Venus will be a wire-thin crescent and absolutely spectacular in even small telescopes. In fact, even in binoculars, you might be even, if you put a good set of 10 by 50 or large binoculars with good optics, you should be able to see Venus as a crescent now. It's that big and uh, that obvious. Unfortunately, because it is going towards the horizon, it's getting harder and harder to observe. And so by the end of the fortnight, Venus has disappeared into the twilight uh, brightness and it's in conjunction with the sun on the the 26th. So you won't be able to see Venus and then you'll have to wait a couple of weeks before it comes up in the morning. Again, it'll be a very thin crescent in the morning and you'll need a really good uh, flat horizon to see it at its best. But uh, once again, Venus will enter the morning skies and be our morning star. So this is also the last week that you'll be able to see all five planets in the evening uh, this year. Um, Mercury has been climbing higher and higher in the horizon. Uh, if you've been watching out this week, we would have seen uh, Venus and Mercury at their closest. But Mercury leaves Venus behind as Venus uh, goes goes horizonwards and it's heading towards Jupiter. And for the, um, the last week of uh, this fortnight, you'll see Mercury and Jupiter less than a hand span apart from the 27th to the end of the month. So that will be a really nice thing to watch. And then, of course, moving up from uh, Mercury and Jupiter, we've got Saturn. Saturn uh, is, uh, again, fairly nondescript at the moment, but it is still uh, in a very nice part of the Milky Way. Sadly, because the Moon is waxing and heading towards full it'll be very difficult to see the uh, more exciting clusters and uh, nebula that Saturn is close to. Because Saturn is lowering towards the horizon, even though you'll be able to see the rings quite nicely in in even a small telescope, the atmospheric turbulence will make it, that it will be quite difficult to get really good views of the rings. Mars, of course, is is dimming rapidly now and um, also shrinking. Mars is now quite, uh, uh, is becoming a difficult object in one of the telescopes. It's still an obvious disk, and you can still see the polar cap uh, uh, readily, but it's getting harder and harder to see the markings on Mars with any degree of clarity. Um, And and now they're they're all lined up in the early evening. You should be able to fairly easily see uh, if you look at uh, half an hour after local sunset. First thing you'll see is Venus above the horizon and sweep your eye up. It'll be Mercury, then Jupiter, then Saturn, then Mars. Excellent. Well, step outside and
0: look up at it.
2: Indeed, indeed.
0: What's the name of the comet that's up at the moment, Ian?
2: It's Comet Bratton. Uh It uh, should be about uh, binocular bright at the moment. And... It's, it's going to become uh, theoretically as bright as a magnitude three later on in the year. So, uh, magnitude three is, is uh, relatively bright, and under normal st- circumstances, it will be easy to see with the unaided eye. But because comets are broad and fuzzy, it may be, uh, despite being effectively bright, it may be quite difficult to see under suburban skies. You'll have to go out to dark skies to see it reasonably well. But at the moment, it's it's, uh, bright enough to see in binoculars, and it's uh, in between the head of CETUS and Arkana, the brightest star in the constellation of Eredas, the river. Over the coming weeks, uh, uh, 46p should be a very good uh, target for both small telescopes and binoculars as it becomes brighter and brighter.
0: So 46p is both visible in the northern and southern hemispheres?
2: It's visible at the moment, mostly in the southern hemisphere. If you're around about the latitude of London and so on, it's going to be uh, too low to see. But it will become more and more visible over the next few weeks as it moves towards Aquarius. So it'll be uh, quite something to have a look at. I did forget one thing which was relatively important is that on the twenty fourth it's the opposition of Uranus. Not only do we have at the moment all five of the bright planets in the sky, we've got the two dim ones as well, uh, Uranus and uh, Neptune. Pluto is also in the mix, but uh, unless you've got a really serious telescope, you're not going to see it. Yep. now at the at the moment, Uranus is bright enough to uh, to see. With the unaided eye, if you happen to be in somewhere dark. So even though it's currently magnitude 5.7, which is bright enough to be seen with the unaided eye, of course, if you're in a suburban environment, the probably probably the dimmest star you can see is magnitude five. So Uranus is not going to be out, but it's easily seen in binoculars. And under dark skies, if you know where you're looking and you've got a good uh, map, you can pick it up. I'm going to put up some uh, maps to help you find uh, Uranus. It's, it's relatively easy to find. And under a telescope, it will look like a uh, uh, a dimish grey disk. But it will be definitely disk-shaped in even small telescopes. So it's, it's well worth having a look. Now is
0: probably a good time to remind listeners that if you want to find out the details Of any of these astronomical phenomena like 46P and Uranus, you need to go and just Google AstroBlog or AstroBlogger and Ian comes up as number one. Now, do you have a tangent for us for this episode, Ian? Yes, I do. This
2: comes out of the skeptics conference where I met a up-and-coming astronomical science communicator, Kirsten Banks, who is also a didgeridoo woman. I've got that wrong. She will hate me forever. Who is uh, passionate about astronomy and uh, Aboriginal astronomy. And she told us uh, a number of tales, mostly about finding the emu in the sky. We've discussed this before, and also some of the more of the background around the four stars that has been given Aboriginal names uh, by the IAU in their recent release of star names. But given that Venus is heading towards the horizon at the moment, I thought I'd share a story that she told about Venus. Now, you know generally how to find the difference between a star and a planet. I do, but tell us, sir you? you look for its twinkling. Stars twinkle, planets don't. The exception is when they're very close to the horizon. When uh, The reason why planets don't twinkle is because their la- angular the diameter is large in, uh, in, with respect to the turbulent cells in the atmosphere, whereas stars' angular diameter is very small with regard to the turbulent cells. So stars twinkle planets don't, except when they get very, very close to the horizon and close to sunset too, when the atmosphere is particularly turbulent. So, while at the moment Venus is not twinkling, later on, when it becomes much closer to the horizon, closer to sunset, you'll be able to see Venus twinkling. And in in Aboriginal astronomy, there's of course many different stories about Venus, but uh, a really uh, fun one that I thought is uh, in in, uh, particular, two particular Aboriginal uh, traditions the Kemiloari and the I'm not going to even pretend to pronounce uh, that one. Um, but two trad- to, um, traditional Aboriginal cultures, Venus is seen as an old man who is laughing animatedly after telling a rude joke. Yep. So, so uh, uh, if you look uh, if you're looking through a small telescope, you'll see Venus as a smile, the, the the crescent pointing downwards to the horizon, and as a smile, and it will be uh, twinkling, and you can just imagine Venus being an old man laughing after telling a rude joke. Fantastic,
0: Ian, and we can also remind listeners that we interviewed Kirsten in episode 53 back in March this year, and she tells some beautiful stories about indigenous astronomy and what a wonderful astronomer she is, and I believe she's also just been awarded with her doctorate.
2: Yes, she has. And again, she's a fantastic person, incredibly enthusiastic, and she's doing a lot of excellent work on Indigenous Australian astronomy. I've been following Australian astronomy for a while, and she's been able to pull out some information that I never knew existed, like the Laughing Venus. And it it takes a lot of work, because amongst other things, you have to be trusted by the elders who are the custodians of these stories. And you have to be able to pass on the stories in an appropriate way so it's a huge amount of work to, to gather and curate these stories as more than just the uh, the stories themselves there's a range of knowledge about the seasons and when to go hunting that's encoded in the stories about the plants and stars so this is a marvelous uh, piece of work that she's doing and I expect to um, hear more from her as a uh, distinguished science communicator in the near future. Exactly,
0: and it's great to see respect and science walking hand in hand.
2: Indeed it is, indeed it is.
0: Well, thank you very much, Dr Ian Astroblog-Musgrave. It's been great speaking with you again. It's been fantastic speaking
2: with you again and hearing of your tales and travels, and, and I'm looking forward to your podcast. Where you tell the stories.
0: Well, the next six episodes,
2: Ian, are from our Astro Tour. Fantastic. Well, I've got to set some special time aside for that. We'll catch you later. Thank you very much for having me on again. As you say, look up. There's so much up there to see. Thanks very
0: much, Ian. Good night, mate.
2: Good night, mate. All the best. We'll catch you in a fortnight's time.
0: And now a quick news roundup. First up, a recent press release from the Curtin University node of the International Centre for Radio Astronomy Research, ICRA. Australian researchers using a CSIRO ASCAP radio telescope in remote Western Australia have nearly doubled the known number of fast radio bursts, powerful flashes of radio waves, from deep space. The team's discoveries include the closest and brightest fast radio bursts ever detected. Their findings were reported in the journal Nature. Fast radio bursts come from all over the sky and last for just milliseconds, and scientists don't know what causes them, but it must involve incredible energy, equivalent to the total amount released by our sun over 80 years. We've found 20 fast radio bursts in a year, almost doubling the number detected worldwide since they were discovered back in 2007 said lead author Dr. Ryan Shannon from Swinburne University of Technology and the Osgrave ARC Centre of Excellence. Using the new technology of the Australian Square Kilometre Array Pathfinder, ASCAP, we've also proved that fast radio bursts are coming from the other side of the universe rather than from our own galactic neighbourhood. Co-author Dr. Jean-Pierre McQuartt, who we interviewed back in episode 35, said, Bursts travel for billions of years and occasionally pass through clouds of gas, and each time this happens, the different wavelengths that make up a burst are slowed by different amounts, he said. Eventually, the burst reaches Earth with its spread of wavelengths, arriving at a telescope at slightly different times, like swimmers at a finish line. Timing the arrival of the different wavelengths tells us how much material the burst has travelled through on its journey. And because we've known that fast radio bursts come from far away, we can use them to detect all the missing matter located in the space between galaxies, which is a really exciting discovery. CSIRO's Dr. Keith Bannister, who engineered the system that detected the bursts, said Ascap's phenomenal discovery rate is down to two things. First, the telescope has a whopping field of view of thirty square degrees, a hundred times larger than the full moon, he said. And by using the telescope's dish antennas in a radical way, with each pointing at a different part of the sky, we observe two hundred and forty square degrees all at once, about a thousand times the area of the full moon, and Ascap is astoundingly good for this work. The team's next challenge is to pinpoint the locations of bursts on the sky. We'll be able to localise the bursts to better than a thousandth of a degree, Dr. Shannon said. That's about the width of a human hair seen from 10 metres away. And that's good enough to tie each burst to a particular galaxy. Of course, the next challenge after that is the holy grail for both observational astronomers and theoretical physicists to identify the physical events that causes these phenomenally powerful bursts in the first place. And, as we noted in our interview with Dr. Stephen Tingay two episodes ago, the CSIRO acknowledges the Wajari Yibaji as the traditional owners of the Murchison Radio Observatory site where ASCAP and the Murchison Wide Field Array are located. Our next report is also based on an ICRA press release and this was released yesterday via the monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society October 17, 2018. Now this is ingenious sciencing from from a nearby remote desert location in Western Australia. The Moon may be the key to unlocking how the first stars and galaxies shaped the early universe. A team of astronomers led by Dr. Benjamin McKinley at Curtin University Node of ICRA and the ARC Centre of Excellence for All-Sky Astrophysics in Three Dimensions, Astro 3D, observed the Moon with a radio telescope to help search for the faint signal from hydrogen atoms in the infant universe. Before there were stars and galaxies, the universe was pretty much just hydrogen floating around in space, Dr McKinley said. Since there are no sources of the optical light visible to our eyes, this early stage of the universe is known as the Cosmic Dark Ages. His team used a unique spider-dipole arrayed radio telescope the Murchison Widefield Array, the MWA, which is located in the Western Australian desert, far away from Earth-based FM radio stations, and it takes the radio signals from space and which they can then convert into images of the sky, he said. The radio signal from the early universe is very weak compared to the extremely bright objects in the foreground, which include accreting black holes in other galaxies and electrons in our own Milky Way. The key to solving this problem is being able to precisely measure the average brightness of the sky. However, built-in effects from the instruments themselves and radio frequency interference (RFI) make it difficult to get accurate observations of this very faint radio signal. In this work, the astronomers used the MWA to radio image the moon as a reference point of known brightness and shape. This allowed the team to measure the brightness of the Milky Way at the position of the occulting moon. The astronomers also took into account Earthshine, radio waves from Earth that reflect off the moon and back onto the telescope. Earthshine corrupts the signal from a moon and the team had to remove this contamination from their analysis. With more observations, the astronomers hope to uncover the hydrogen signal and put theoretical models of the universe to the test. The work continues and if you'd like to see an animation of the images created using this technique, go to tinyoolcom forward slash radio moonshine, all lowercase all one word. Thank you, Ikhra. See you in two weeks.
2: Yeah. Radio right Wave!